Today on Ag News Daily. In the United States, we have our foreign policy and we have our trade policy. And yes, they've got to coordinate. And the U.S. Trade Representative and the Secretary of State are coordinating along with defense. I mean, I'm not going to be naive. Trade is part of our foreign policy in the United States. But we still kind of think of trade policy at times being different. Good afternoon and happy Thursday, folks. We are almost to the weekend. It's Ashton Carr flying solo on the Ag News Daily podcast today. You know, it is a beautiful day as I sit here in the DFW area. I'm more towards the Oklahoma border for those Texans that might be listening or anyone that's familiar with Texas geography. I am in Anna, Texas at my parents' house And so, you know, we're real close to that Oklahoma border, but it is a beautiful day. Like I said, in the seventies, you know, there's no wind down here like there is in Lubbock. So it's a beautiful, beautiful day. Wish that I was spending it outside rather than talking news today, because honestly, really is not a whole lot to go over today. My day's been not so busy, just like the the news wires weren't busy today. I've had two finals to take care of today. So we're almost towards the end of the semester and I get a small break before I have to start back up with summer classes, unfortunately. But for those who did summer school, you kind of know that pain. But moving right along here with some more weather conversation, monsoon rains that mark the start of the four-month rainy season are likely to enter India through the southern coast around June 1st. So in less than a month, we'll be seeing that weather pattern over there. And monsoon rains are really essential for the growth of some of their key crops like rice, corn, sugarcane, cotton, and soybeans because Nearly half of India's farmland has no irrigation cover like some of the irrigation covers that we see here in the United States. But hopefully those farmers in India do see those monsoon rains coming here pretty soon and that there's no big threats this season. Moving right along here, I want to talk a little bit about the markets. I know that's generally not something that I talk about. It's more Delaney's cup of tea. But in recent weeks, the cattle industry has seen corn prices go up, 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 and cattle prices start to drop. Scott Brown is a livestock economist with the University of Missouri, and he said, quote, for me, if I'm a cow-calf producer looking to figure out what to do with my feeder cattle ready to come to auction this fall, I have less risk management options available as these feeder cattle markets have struggled in the face of higher feed costs. He told Brownfield Ag News that rising input costs are narrowing margins for all sectors of the industry. He said that a 10 cent increase is going to get us about an 80 cent decrease in feeder cattle prices just to make that feed yard break even for that added cost of gain. Brown says with rising feed costs and other challenges facing cattle producers, there's a very little incentive to grow the herd. Brown adds that he doesn't think that we're going to see a grow in inventory in cattle anytime soon. So maybe some not so good news there for our cattle producers. I mean, the relationship between feed prices and livestock, it's, you know, a a tough one that we have to pay attention to, especially with 
maybe not so much uncertainties in the corn markets, but just, you know, it's going on right now. And we'll talk probably a little bit more about this with Delaney and whomever we talk about markets with on Monday. I don't think I'm the best person to be giving advice or commentary on this, but definitely something that we are going to have to pay attention to in the coming months. Another piece of news I have here coming from the USDA concerns local and regional food grants. More than $90 million in grants are available from USDA as part of coronavirus assistance to local and regional food producers. The USDA says through the Local Agriculture Market Program, which was created in the 2018 Farm Bill, producers can access grants to develop, coordinate, and expand direct-to-consumer marketing, local and regional food markets, and value-added ag products. Projects are also encouraged that assist underserved local and regional ag communities in responding to COVID-19 disruptions and impacts. Nearly $77 million of the funding is directed to projects under the Farmers Market Promotion Program and Local Food Promotion Program. More than $15 million is earmarked for regional food system partnerships. We're just seeing another support for our food producers because of COVID-19. So I guess that's a plus and a positive in any way that you look at it. This might be another fitting piece of news that I'm about to share today because we are talking about the Biden administration later on in our interview, as well as our trade relationships with some of our foreign counterparts. But for right now, this is my last piece of news before we get into the markets and then get into that interview. But the Biden-Harris administration outlined a vision for how the U.S. can work collaboratively to conserve and restore the lands, waters, and wildlife that support and sustain our country. The recommendations are contained in a report outlining a locally led and voluntary nationwide conservation goal to conserve 30% of U.S. lands and waters by 2030, also known as the 30 by 30 conservation plan. And there's been a lot of talk about the 30 by 30 conservation plan in the headlines recently. We haven't gotten a whole lot of clarification or anything like that. But this report calls for a decade-long effort to support locally led and voluntary conservation and restoration efforts across public, private, and even tribal lands and waters in order to create jobs and strengthen the economy's foundation, tackle the climate and nature crises, and address inequitable access to the outdoors. A lot of people, I think, have been spending some more time outdoors because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but the report submitted to the National Climate Task Force was developed by the U.S. Departments of the Interior, Agriculture, and Commerce and the White House Council on Environmental Quality. It outlines eight principles that should guide the nationwide effort, including the pursuit of collaborative approaches, a commitment to supporting the voluntary conservation efforts of farmers, ranchers, and fishers, and honoring of tribal sovereignty and private property rights. Based on the feedback gathered in the administration's first 100 days, the report identifies six priority areas for the administration's early focus, investments, and collaboration. I won't go through those completely because I think that will take up a little bit of time. But if you want to know more about this report, I suggest going to agdaily.com. That's the report that I have been looking at, or not the report, but the article about the report that I have been looking at. Otherwise, you can go to the USDA's website and find a little bit more information there. 
But that is all the solo news that I have today. So let's go ahead and jump into the markets where there was a lot of green on the screen for grains today. Starting off here with corn, the May contract up six and a half cents to close at 7.59 and a half. The July up 10 and a quarter to close at 7.18 and three quarters. The December up, up 20 and three quarter cents to close at 6.25 and a half. Heading over to soybeans, starting out in the May contract, up 23 and a half to close at 16.05 and a half. The July contract up 27 and a quarter cents to close at 15.69 and a half. The November up 26 and a quarter to close at 15.09 flat. In wheat, the May contract is up eight and a half cents to close at 7.64 and a quarter. The July up eight and the three quarter cents close at 7.53 and a quarter. The December up 11 and a half cents to close at 7.57 and a half. Heading over to livestock, kicking it off here with live cattle up a dollar and a quarter to end at 115 and four quarters. The August up seven and a half to close at 118 and four quarters. And the October up three quarters to close at 123 and four quarters. In feeder cattle today, lots of red on the screen. It wasn't too great of a day, it seems like, in the feeder cattle markets. In the May contract, down a dollar to close at 130 and four quarters. The August down a dollar eight and a quarter to close at 143.40. And to round out our livestock markets, lean hogs, green on the screen here with the May contract, up a quarter to close at 111.40. In the June, up half to close at 114 and four quarters. The July, up one and three quarters to close at 114.65. Rounding out our market conversation here with the class three dairy milk futures. May down 28 cents to close at 1887. The June down 75 cents to close at a 1901. And the July down again 68 cents to close at 1918. And with that, I'm going to kick it over to my conversation with Dawson and Bill Bryant of Bryant and Chrissy Inc. For today's topic of discussion, we're going to be talking about the Biden administration and some of our trade relationships with Bill Bryant, who's been on the podcast before. But just to refresh your memory, Bill is chairman of Bryant Christie Incorporated. And Bill, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us today. I really appreciate it. I'll come on whenever you want. Well, Bill, you know, for our listeners who might have missed the prior interview or interviews that we've done with you, will you just refresh their memory on what it is that you do? Sure. Brian Christie represents a number of U.S. agricultural commodity groups, um, agricultural producer organizations and companies, and largely is entirely focused on the food, beverage, and agricultural commodity sector um, so we represent those companies that are trying to ship their products around the world, and we assist them with a lot of their foreign government affairs and regulatory issues. So, Bill, the um, Biden administration just celebrated 100 days in office. Can you tell us a little bit about what the administration has done and kind of where we're at now that we are at 100 days? Yeah, it's um, 
it's been a very good, solid start for the Biden administration. I mean, they inherited a lot of uneasy relationships, to put it politely. And I think that they have done a very admirable job in quietly going out and reestablishing some ties with some of our key trading partners. Um, that's true in Europe. It's true with Japan. It's true even within the North American region. And I think that while it isn't grabbing headlines, they're laying a foundation that they're going to be able to build upon for the next three and a half years. Well, Bill, kind of getting into uh, trading and everything like that with uh, China, you know, they've been in our headlines a lot recently, uh, you know, buying a lot of our commodities, buying other commodities across the world. Um, Can you just kind of give us more insight into, you know, relationships with China uh, as a whole with the U.S. and kind of other countries as well? Yeah, China is our most difficult relationship right now, Um, not just on the trade front. But in terms of, of military and technology uh, as well, there are a lot of outstanding issues, which the Biden administration has inherited and I think is doing a, a very good job of trying to navigate. When we look just at agriculture, uh, we have the purchase agreement, which you know I've been on the show and we've talked about before, the U.S.-China purchase agreement. Um, in 2020, China's goal was to purchase $36.6 billion in U.S. agricultural goods, and they ended up purchasing about $23.5, $23.6 billion. So they were about 64% of goal. Um, so far this year, they're probably around 70% of goal. Now, if I were China, I'd argue, well, you know, hell, we had a pandemic and we made it 64% of our goal. We got to get an A for effort. And there's some truth in that. But I don't think that there is any commitment on either side to really seeing this agreement through. Uh, In the last part of, of 2020, President Trump essentially said, well, that agreement's no longer important which is essentially telling the Chinese, let's quit keeping score. And if he didn't think it was important, they weren't going to think it's important. Under the agreement, we were to have had a U.S.-China meeting by February, so in sometime between December and February, but certainly by the end of February, to go over where they were relative to the agreement and the goals. And that meeting has never happened and, as far as I'm aware, has not been scheduled So I think we're in a new territory with China in terms of whether or not they're going to live up to the goals in 2021. Like I said, they're about 70% of where they should be. They could catch up, but they're only going to catch up if they feel it's in their best interest to catch up. And and what we got to remember with China is that, you know, trade is part of their foreign policy. In the United States, we have our foreign policy, we have our trade policy. And yes, they've got to coordinate. And the U.S. Trade Representative and the Secretary of State are coordinating along with defense. I mean, I'm not going to be naive. Trade is part of our foreign policy in the United States. But we still kind of think of trade policy at times being different from a lot of other tools in our foreign policy box. And China doesn't. Everything is interrelated. So if you want to know what's likely to happen next if we don't go forward with this China purchasing agreement, I'd watch what's going on with Taiwan. That's what I'm watching right now. Our relationship with with China is as tense as as it has been right now over Taiwan. In the first 100 days, the Biden administration has taken steps to do more to formally recognize Taiwan and to send signals that the United States will defend Taiwan. 
I think this is particularly true after the Chinese politically took over Hong Kong and the United States said nothing for the most part. And I think the Biden administration is saying Taiwan will be different, but we haven't quite explained how we're going to respond. In Australia, there's actually open conversation about whether or not Australia would ally with the United States if we militarily go to war over Taiwan. Um, the Canadian um, next week are going to give the Taiwan president an award for the, her resistance uh, to the Chinese regime and her pro-democracy positions. The Chinese are going to be looking at all that. And that will factor into whether or not they're going to be very interested in negotiating a new agricultural agreement or a new telecommunications agreement. This is all going to be part of a bigger package. So I think we we need to be watching very closely what's going on on the foreign policy side with Taiwan if we want to understand what's likely to happen on the agricultural side with China. Um, U.S. Trade Representative Tai, I think I give her big marks for maintaining trade leverage with China. And uh, Secretary of State Blinken, I think, is being very firm and diplomatic. He's not being bellicose. He's not taking headlines. But I think behind the scenes, he's delivering the messages that need to be delivered. Bill, you bring up a lot of great talking points there, but one thing that I've been paying attention to as well as Delaney on the podcast is talking about the kind of lack of shipping containers that we have domestically. She talked yesterday about how China is kind of hogging them, if you want to call it. So what does, you know, what's going on there? Can we take a a further look into that and, you know, what the implications are? You bet. I, I don't know. Your listeners probably don't know. But for eight years, I was um, an elected commissioner of the Port of Seattle and president of the port for three of those years. So this is an issue that I, I do follow and uh, have a lot of friends that are following it even more closely than I am. And and I think you kind of have to look at the current situation on containers and break it down into the three phases, pre-pandemic and then pandemic and where we are now. And pre-pandemic, there was actually a, a surplus of containers. And as a result of that, shipping companies really didn't put in any orders to buy new or more containers. And so the manufacturing of containers was already going down And when we entered the pandemic. Then of course, we entered the pandemic, supply chains are disrupted, a lot of Chinese factories are entirely shut down. And there's a lot of concern that we're not going to bounce back very quickly. So again, There wasn't a manufacturing of new uh, refrigerated containers or even dry vans really going on as they had been before, not even to replace those that were clearly getting at the end of their life cycle. And and that's kind of where we were with this kind of lull in building new uh, containers until, like, let's just say recently, as I say, not post-pandemic, but certainly coming out of it, a lot of economies, particularly in the United States, um, recovered much more rapidly, and that's largely because of all of the um, stimulus dollars we pumped into the U.S. economy. So suddenly, U.S. consumers are buying in a way they hadn't for months, and shipping rates from, let's say, China to the United States or back that way are, you know, two in some cases two and a half times what they were before the pandemic. Now, because there's so much more demand in the United States, Chinese exporters are willing to pay those higher rates to get their product here. Um, and so they're they're moving their stuff over in containers, but there's not that demand on the U.S. side 
to fill those containers and ship them back to China at the shipping rates that exist right now. So what I've been told is that some shipping companies are simply trying to unload those containers in the United States as quickly as possible and take them back empty so that they can um, have an importer fill them and they can charge the higher price coming back to the U.S. And that's that's supply and demand. I think it's all a function of just a, a screwed up supply chain uh, because of the pandemic. And in months, this will sort itself out and new containers will be built and come online. But in the short run, and uh, I was talking to a friend yesterday in the industry, and he said, you know, the short run could be anywhere from September to the end of the year. Uh, there, These disruptions are likely to continue. Well, Bill, you kind of bring up a lot of good points with, you know, supply chain complexities and kind of Moving away from trading with China specifically, kind of going over to Europe, uh, you know, the the German chancellor is kind of bringing up more talks about wanting to get more trade agreements with the U.S., um, with dealing with the EU specifically. But, you know, the president uh, of France is not too keen on that. Um, How can we kind of see moving forward with maybe opening more trade deals back up with uh, the EU as well as maybe eliminating some tariffs that they're also calling for? Right, Dustin. Um, I think when you want to look at what the Biden administration is planning to do with the UK or with the European Union, um, look at what they haven't done, what the Biden administration hasn't done as much as what it has. What they haven't done is ask Congress for new trade promotion authority. And that the current trade promotion authority, which gives the president the authority to negotiate trade agreements, expires in July. And if we were to negotiate an agreement with the United Kingdom or with the European Union, the president would need that trade promotion authority unless he wrapped it up by July, which isn't going to happen. So that tells me that there's not a real high priority being placed on negotiating any new trade agreements right now. Um, if you look at the landscape, I think you you described it pretty well, that Germany sort of begun to be interested, um, probably because they're very concerned about increasing their manufacturing exports. But France isn't so much. And um, the other concern that I have is that you, I think we're going to see the Green Party in the European Parliament get, gain more seats. And the Green Party is pushing this farm to fork strategy. And part of the farm to fork strategy is to significantly reduce the use of pesticides and herbicides and to prohibit the importation of products that use commodities that use those pesticides or herbicides. This is if it is implemented that way. And my friends in the European Commission say, no, we're going to do this totally WTO consistently. And I think that I believe them that they want to. But I think the European Parliament is going to push for a much more protectionist policy. And so they're going to be very reluctant to accelerate any agricultural agreement uh, with the United States. And in the UK, um, you know, I, I think that there's some leadership that would like to negotiate a new agreement, but when it comes to agriculture, I think they would like to figure out some way to carve out agriculture because the the issue over poultry, chlorinated poultry, which I think is a red herring, you can have herrings and poultry in the same sentence. Um, but they're, uh, they're very concerned about U.S. food and food safety standards and manufacturing practices, and certainly that's not going to get worked out by July. So if the Biden administration were really serious, I think they would be asking for an extension of that authority, and, and they haven't. I wouldn't expect anything moving too quickly 
uh, with trade agreements with the European Union or with the UK right now? Well, Bill, there's certainly a lot to unpack when it comes to trade and our relationships with, you know, our foreign counterparts. But if any of our listeners want to discuss this even further or learn a little bit more, where can they find you online? Yeah, go to the Bryant Christie website um, because you can access, you can email me directly from there. And that's bryantchristie.com, B-R-Y-A-N-T-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E, bryantchristie.com. Uh, you'll learn all about the company. And if you go to the, uh, the About Us or Meet Our Staff section, you can directly email me. Awesome. Well, Bill, thank you once again for coming and talking to us about trade today. Great. Thank you so much. I'll come on anytime. Thanks again there to Bill for coming on and talking to us. Like I said there, we've had Bill on to talk before. It's always great to have him on and get a little bit of insight into the Biden administration. A lot of things, like I said there to digest when it comes to our trade relationships. And a lot is kind of going on right now from a global perspective. So we're going to keep an eye out on that, folks. So be sure to tune in on agnewsdaily.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave us a kind note while you're there. And with that, I'm going to let the people go.